0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Scott Thompson is, well, he's either off voting early or he's working on his Halloween costume. I'm not sure which one it is, but he is off today. He'll be back. No worries. He'll be back on Monday on Election Day. Don't forget that. We're going to be talking a little about the election today, but glad you're along. Thrilled that you're along here. The store called The Cabinet of Curiosities and Otherwise Needful Things, it is not your, not your typical store, let me tell you, on Ottawa Street. It is, well, Hamilton's most unusual store, I think, is not an overstatement. Mark Drack is the founder and co-owner of the store who joins us now. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing terrific, thank you. I, I understand that as we're uh, a week and a little bit away from Halloween, this would be just about the perfect time for you and the things that you you offer in your store.
1: Well, it's pretty much the the time
0: of year that we certainly fit in the most, I think. And maybe there's a little bit of
1: a less shock when people walk in and experience the store for the first time because we're pretty much kind of Halloween macabre all year long with our oddities and curiosities, yeah.
0: Okay, so you had been for quite a while on Hat Street in Dundas. You've recently moved to Ottawa Street. So a lot of people who were not familiar with you necessarily in the Ottawa Street area have probably now stumbled in because they saw you opening up. What's the response? The response is incredible. Since we've moved here into Hamilton, it's just, it's night and day.
1: Dundas was great, but we were kind of set back on a, on a side street. But here on, Dun, or here on Ottawa Street, uh we're so much like an attraction like a museum and it's you know that's probably one of the greatest things about the shop is to watch the expression uh and to listen to the feedback when people come in off the street nobody expects what they see when they walk in here and it's always just over the top everybody's really excited and there's always questions and and just kind of amazement when you walk in the door and you know that you're greeted by a 19th century coffin and and uh, some natural history, woolly mammoth leg bones, and and like full mount lions are looking at you. It's it's quite the experience, and and that's the biggest rush for us is to be able to offer something that's so completely unique. And you know we uh, we relish the fact that we are the uh, I can probably argue that we are the most unique store in uh, Hamilton, if, if not the region.
0: I I would love to see the one that's more unique. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that.
1: I, I think that might be some sort of escape room or something like that, or some kind of, of a haunted Disney attraction or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the LSD,
0: sure. the LSD escape room might be more, but next to that, that I, I think you guys are it. What is the thing though, when people walk in and again, you've, you've touched on a few of the things. I mean, I, when I came to visit some time ago, uh, you know, there was a, an authentic pirates peg leg and there were headhunter things and like what's the thing when people walk in there that you're you're seeing what is the thing that makes most people go whoa well
1: that well that's honestly that's the thing that's the greatest thing for me about the shop is that there's no one thing uh in fact what what happens often is when people come in and you can see that kind of expression and that that long pause like where do i begin like you've just entered into the gateway of what uh i think we're all used to uh, our our expectations are always met. We walk into any store, we find, you know, by aisle number, that sort of thing. And yet, when you walk in here, you don't know where to look. Like you said, a pirate's peg leg, 1860s dentist chair. Uh, We've got props from from significant shows like American Gods, where we've got jars with faces and hands and feet and feet in them. Uh, We've got medical oddities like a sixteenth century amputation saw. We've got woolly mammoth leg bones. We've got full mount muskox and lions and 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 things like that. So they really don't know where to start. So it's 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 really kind of there's nothing that they can pick one thing. And and often when they get to the door and after they they've come up and they're talking to us, which is great because it's such an experience that everybody wants to talk to us about it. Uh, you know, I could throw a quiz at them and I can wrap off 10 things right off the top of my head. Did you see this, 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 this? And they're like, no, (laughs) because there's so much to see. Every single show has, has so many different things on it that you just, you just don't know where to focus. So it's a different trip. Every, every time you come back,
0: it's a different experience. How many people though, at some point during the time they're walking around, turn to you and go, is this even legal?
1: a few times we we get that and and it's not uh, it's not surprising because I mean we've got uh, medical specimens in jars you know we've got human anatomy, we have uh, natural history uh, so it's because that there's no exposure to this literally anywhere else and and we've taken it upon ourselves to bring back the wonder, bring back the amusement so when somebody looks at a human skull, obviously one of the first things they look at is, like, is this legal? Like, is that real? Like, where and, did you get this? Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, at some point, like, we we definitely are, are extremely cautious, and we do our due diligence on where the material comes from. And there's so many sources that are just overlooked. Like, you wouldn't think of it because it's not in your normal, everyday realm. So, uh, museums, they deacquisition all the time. Uh, and then you've got uh, medical uh, uh, schools, you've got universities that sell off collections. So much of our material comes from uh, 19th century museums. We've got incredible stock from the Niagara Falls Museum that closed in the late 90s. Uh, I mean, that's where we had human uh, shrunken heads and we had tribal skulls. And, you know, we've got the full mount musk ox, you know, things like that.
0: So, so if someone if someone comes to sell you a skull and it's got a tuft of grass and dirt on it, you're not buying, in other words.
1: Yeah, no, I always check the footwear, too. I look for rubber boots <laughs> with mud on them, and I look for, you know, if they park close enough and I can see a shovel sticking out of the trunk, the answer is no, right?
2: <laughs> That's why I, yeah, I, I would say that would,
1: that, line.
0: that would be very wise. You know, it's fun to have the store uh, until you find out that uh, something was not supposed to be there. Listen, it is a, uh, it is a very fun store. It is very... Um, I think I described it once upon a time as a a home decor store. If Morticia Adams was the home decor expert, uh, kind of the idea there
1: definitely. suits. And I I think that's one of the things too, that's really important is that people find things here that they never expected and would never consider. It doesn't come up in your conscious thought of, I need that one piece, you know, in my, in my living room, in my den, uh, you know, something, uh, do I have a collection or not? And, and, it's we carry things that you simply simply not on your radar,
0: never on your radar. It's called Cabinet no. of Curiosities. It's on Ottawa Street. Yeah, you can go look it up. It's Halloween. Lots of business coming in these days. But go, uh, go take a peek. It seems very appropriate. Mark Drack, founder and co-owner, of Cabinet of Curiosities. Thanks for the time today.
1: Great talking to you, Scott. Thanks very much.
0: This is um, I don't want to say this is a no brainer. Uh, cause I, I, but I mean, this, if you're going to name something after someone in this city, I think there is one person that probably comes to the top of the list. And so good for McMaster for picking this one. I want to bring in Sean Van Conant, who's the associate vice president of students and learning and the Dean of students at McMaster. Sean, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you listen this is you guys are building new student residences and uh, you know as i say, i don't want to i don't want to steal the thunder and say it was too easy for you guys to pick someone to name this after but you know in this city this one's a pretty good one and this one's you know i would say pretty safe isn't it
3: well certainly uh lincoln alexander as everyone knows is a, a great hamiltonian i think named the greatest um also earned uh um Uh, BA from uh, from McMaster in way back in 1949 so he was actually a McMaster Mm -hmm. grad and uh, of course passionate about education and we know all the the great things that that he's done for uh, the city the province and the country so yes it was a a fitting tribute for for such a great uh, Hamiltonian and Canadian
0: when uh, by the way just so people know this is going to be on Main Street West this new facility it's what is where exactly on Main West and where what's the status of construction at this point
3: so if you're facing the the Children's Hospital, be and I'm not great with east and west, and it's directly adjacent, <laughs> directly to the right of the the hospital. I guess it would be directly uh, east of, of of the hospital. Um, on uh, so we've got Dalewood Foresight uh, Main Street West. Uh, the, the okay. Border. Okay. Uh, that, so there are we there are a number of of houses there that. Um, uh, McMaster purchased, and we've uh, finally been able to get demolition permits for those houses. So uh, over the coming weeks, those those homes will be demolished so that we can, uh, we can begin construction. When you go to,
0: when you sit down with people now, uh, cause these are, you know, these can be dicey things, naming things after people, we know that now. Um, I mean, a university in Toronto just had to change its entire name. So when you sit down to come up with a name for something like this, what is the process in 2022?
3: Uh, it, it's going to differ depending on what's being named, but certainly you want to consult with, and it's it's also uh, depending on the nature of it. Uh, you don't necessarily want the, the name to get out to before you want it to get out, so it has to be both consultative but with confidential at the same time. So, um, key people within within the university um, within the community are, are consulted for for various naming. Opportunities. This one, as you point out, um, there was really no no concern. There would be no concern from anyone on on this uh, this particular name. Um, it wasn't done because it was a quote unquote safe, but it was done because it was, as I said, a fitting tribute to a remarkable man. And uh, and at the university, of course, we don't have any anything at this point uh, named after such a such a great person. So it was, and it's going to be uh, right on Main Street West, as we've just talked about, very prominent. Uh, and, and quite the structure in terms of 1,366 beds are by far our largest residence, uh, and and so uh, you know it um, it's going to be quite the quite the iconic uh, addition to campus.
0: And I would agree with you wholeheartedly that I, I wouldn't have any concerns about this, and I think it's a great choice, and I think it's you just you can't go wrong with Lincoln Alexander but just go back for a second cuz this one so now you've had the obvious one and dare say the easy one so next time something comes up what does the process become now because i'm sure that there have been other things as well that have been named on campus is there a a committee that looks into it to make sure that the name is okay or as I say, what what would you go through now? Because you don't want to yeah. choose something that you then find someone say, "Well, you can't do that because of mm-hmm. whatever." How do you do that? Well, there
3: there is a governance process that we have in place, and so our our university advancement team, um, you know, normally leads leads that process. It goes right eventually uh, through a number of committees right to the the Board of Governors for approval after it goes through different committees, such as the University Planning Committee. So all along the way, there are uh, people involved in in betting these naming opportunities, whether it be a name for a building, uh, a facility um, or any other major initiative. So um, a lot of people involved at every, you know, throughout the university at every stage of the process.
0: This is going to be, um, as you say, about 1,600 students. Is that need?
3: 1,366, actually. Sorry,
0: 1,300. Yes, yes, sorry. Uh, Is that that need? Are those students already at university at McMaster who don't right now have a place and they have to look off campus? Or is this talking about, is this sort of suggesting the growth and the expansion of what we're expecting in the next three, four, five years?
3: No, it's it's not suggesting growth of the overall enrollment. It it is to to meet a need that we know is there, uh, especially um, as uh, as we're back in person, obviously. And and students we know are many of whom are, are commuting. They're living in the housing that maybe is is not what they the type and the, in the location that they desire. Um, we also know that there's always a demand, uh, even from our first year students, where ideally we'd like every first year student. Who wants a place in residence to have one and, and this residence will enable us to do that And as well we're hoping that there will be upper year students who can who can uh, live in residence now and a lot of times upper year students second third fourth year students don't don't want to live in residence but some do and uh, and we hope to have space for them as well
0: space is is a really interesting word um with the campus i was driving through there the other day i was going to a i think it was the volleyball game last saturday when you guys were playing ohio state and Driving through the campus, the the new athletics facility, the expanded athletics facility is, looks mm-hmm. like it's almost done. And across the street, uh, attached to or beside the new Peter George building, there's something going on there. And yep. there is coming a point, I would think, Sean, where it's getting a little squeezy in that campus. I mean, as you continue to grow, how much space is there left for Mac to add more things
3: yeah, it's a very good question. And, and we're actually actively working on a, a campus master plan that would have us identify some of those those spaces. But you're right. We we are uh, where we have limits uh, within the, the Westdale campus. And of course, we have other other spaces, other campuses, our, our Burlington campus, where uh, our MBA program is based out of. We are developing space out at the McMaster Innovation Park. Um, and so, uh, we've got, and we've got our, of course, the David Bailey Health Sciences Center downtown. So I think um, there are other opportunities, uh, looking maybe longer term into the future, to continue to develop uh, our, our physical presence where it's needed and where we can contribute to the community. Um, the LRT project will probably open up avenues as well as transportation becomes easier and more efficient uh, along that corridor. So. Um, you're right. The Westdale campus, we can't expand and won't be expanding forever, but we're going to make the most use of of the space that we have. And there are pockets where we can still make use of it. We also want to be cognizant of the the public realm space. There is a need, especially on a university campus, to have spaces where people can just hang out outside when the weather's nice and, and enjoy a campus environment where it's not packed full of buildings. But the corner of campus that you identified, it is in te- being intensified with the Peter George Center, the athletics expansion, and the construction site you mentioned is an addition or a new building, um, claim Center, uh, that's it, going to be uh, associated with our uh, uh, School of Business. Sean Van Cotten,
0: Associate Vice President of Students and Learning and the Dean of Students at McMaster. Uh, Sean, thank you for the time today. Really
3: appreciate it. Thanks very much. Have a
0: great weekend. Uh, about three hours, three hours and ten minutes from now, the Hamilton Ticats are going to kick off against the Ottawa Red Blacks at Tim Hortons Field, last home game of the year, no matter what. Last home game of the year for the Ticats. The question now is, are they going to have any more games after next week? Will they make the playoffs? Well, it's pretty simple. Hamilton has to lose both of their final games or Saskatchewan... Well, they got to... They gotta, Saskatchewan has to win one more game than Hamilton does. So if Hamilton wins tonight, Saskatchewan has to run the table. But if Hamilton wins both, they're in. It's not really all that complicated. They could be in tonight is what I'm saying. Let me let me bring in Rick Zampern, who's probably going to explain this way better than I am. Uh, you can catch Rick after the game on the fifth quarter. So Rick, if they win tonight and Saskatchewan loses to Calgary, which is very possible the way Saskatchewan's playing, because right now they stink, uh, Hamilton's in the playoffs. That is correct. It is a win and potentially clinch kind of night at Tim Hortons
4: Field. And who would have thought, especially yeah. after the Labor Day debacle, that this team at one point was, I don't know, 3-10, 3-11, whatever the case was. 3-10, I guess it would have been. Um, that they would be in a position at this point of the season to clinch a playoff spot, even with a week to go. Um, the, the turnaround, the circumstances, what's happened at West has been...
0: It's been very intriguing. I, okay, I, this is going to get me killed by some people, but to me, this is a good news, bad news scenario. The good news is that the Ticats are going to be in the playoffs. The bad news is I don't think it's really healthy for a league that a three and 10 team is still in a playoff hunt, period. But <laughs> I mean, good for the Ticats for getting into that position because that's well, it's it's, legal. It's fine. It's within the rules, all that kind of stuff. So good for them. I just, I just don't think it's a good look that a league has a team that has won three out of 13 games fighting for a playoff spot that's just me yeah it's
4: it's good and it's bad i mean the bad part is yeah it's not a good look i mean you're three and ten and you're somehow uh you know seven games under 500 still in the thick of things with you know about half the season to go you know speaks to a couple things number one there's only nine teams you know if there were 20 teams there's no way at the half point of the season or just a bit past it that if you were three and ten You'd be in the playoff picture. You would have been probably, if not eliminated, on the brink of. Um, so there's, you know, one of the saving grace. The, the you know, the other side of the coin here, and the good side, is, you know, even 13 games into an 18 game season, you're still into it. Virtually, no matter what your record is. Let's not forget. Ottawa is 4-12 and 12 right now, and they are still mathematically yes. yep. able to clinch a playoff spot. Yep. So, I mean, they're in a worse position than Hamilton, and with two weeks to go, they can still make the playoffs.
0: And look, the flip side also is good for Hamilton, because they, as bad as they were for the first two-thirds of the season, they have been demonstratively better for the last number of games and beat Winnipeg, which n- literally nobody saw. Come. I mean, there was, there was nobody. If you hooked every single Hamilton Ticat player up to a lie detector machine and injected them with sodium pentothal, None of them would come out showing that they believe they were going to beat Winnipeg. I'm convinced. But then they beat Calgary as well in Calgary. So fantastic for them that they have suddenly seemed to turn a corner and become suddenly much better. But this is the frustrating
4: thing with, you know, the the Ticats, maybe even with sports for, for, you know, in some cases, because you have a team that is relatively the same now as what it was on Labor Day and before Labor Day. And, you know, this is a team that lost to Edmonton, which has been dreadful this year. This is a team that barely beat Ottawa so many weeks ago. Uh, this is a team that was up 24 to nothing on Calgary in week number two and somehow managed to say, eh, we're not going to win this game. Cool. Um, there's There's been no significant changes to this Ticats team, yet you just mentioned that they've beaten two of the best teams in the league in the last month or so. And now they're charging towards the playoffs, one of the hottest teams in the league. It is... It's a it's a strange uh, turnaround, but hey, uh, you know we'll take it. If you're a TyCats fan, you are more than happy at how they're so right
0: now. A hundred percent, and and honestly, if I am Montreal or Toronto, and it's unclear. I mean, there's a chance they it's they're probably if they win today and they get in the playoffs, probably they're playing Montreal, but there's still a chance in the first round they could end up with Toronto. Uh, If I'm either Montreal or Toronto, I'm not loving the way Hamilton is looking right now because suddenly, as you say, they've come alive a little bit. The flip side, though, Rick, is that after beating Winnipeg and looking like, holy cow, they beat Winnipeg. Nobody beats Winnipeg. They -hmm. then laid a giant turd the next week. So after beating Calgary in Calgary, first time, what was it, 18 years? The first time they had done that? Yeah can we say with a great deal of confidence that they're going to look the same tonight as they did last week? Absolutely not.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's been, you know, one of the things that this team, you know, you look at the team, you're thinking... A, what happened when they were three and ten, and B, now that they've won a couple of games in a row, their first ever two-game winning streak of the season, you're thinking, okay, how how have they turned it around? I mean, really, they they have the same guys in the field. None of the coaches got fired. There's no you know grand pooh pulling the strings behind a curtain. Um, it it's wild and wacky, and you know this almost uh, has the same feeling as 1986, where that team you know kind of scratched and clawed their way into the playoffs. They played Toronto in a two-game total point series in which they had to rally massively in the second game to get into the Grey Cup. And then were massive underdogs against Edmonton, and they end up winning the whole darn thing. I'm not I'm not saying this Ticats team is going to do that, but the potential is there because we've seen it's it there. before, not, not just in Hamilton, but with other teams. So who knows? You get into the big dance, and you might be celebrating at the end of the night.
0: Uh, it's, it is it is possible. It absolutely is possible. Hey, look, we have about 30 seconds left. I got to ask you this, uh, switching to the other football for a minute. You're a big Miami Dolphins fan. Tua Tavaga, however you say his last name, I can never say it. I, I can say it in my head and then it, try to get it out of my mouth and my tongue gets all tangled up. Yeah, He is apparently playing this week after all the concussions and everything else. What happens in the NFL or to the Dolphins, but what happens to the NFL if he were to, heaven forbid, get another concussion this week?
4: Well, I you know I know they've already had an investigation. They've already uh, changed their concussion protocol going forward. Um, I'm I'm just hopeful that Tua never suffers another concussion. But hundred percent, you know, we've seen the likes of Eric Lindros and so many others who you know they go back to the uh, back to the cauldron and they get burned again. if it happens again, I would suspect that he is going to be forced to be gone for the rest of the season, even though all this time he's been passing these concussion tests. Uh, if it happens again, the NFL is going to have to have a serious look in the mirror to say, it, it, is it a possibility that if someone suffers a concussion, they have to be on a six-game or whatever injured list, and then they'll be ruled uh, you know, back into a lineup? It, it might have to come to that because if it happens again, my oh my, it's, it's, that is not a good look.
0: That is, it will be a terrible look for the NFL, not just because of their protocols, but just for the casual fan who's watching in going, how in the world do you let a guy play after what he's had if it were to happen again? Praying that it doesn't. I mean, I want him to be healthy and finish the year and never have his head hit again. But my goodness, uh, you got to know at the NFL head office, they are on pins and needles praying the same way that they don't have to deal with this. But I almost bet you they've got a press release written up already just in case. Uh, Rick Zamprin, you can catch Rick tonight after the Ticat game right here on 900CHML. Bring your comments to the fifth quarter, generally in some reasonable degree of sobriety, but hey, Rick has has dealt with people who aren't, so whatever you gotta bring, you bring it tonight after the game. Uh, Rick, enjoy tonight. Looking forward to it. Thanks. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer,
4: he'll delve
5: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We are not only close to an election which will change who is in the mayor's chair, but we are also moving forward, it seems, somehow, some way, towards a decision on the Commonwealth Games, the 2030 Commonwealth Games, which have been a story that's been ongoing for some time now. Well, the other day, our mayor, along with some others, were down in New York having the latest discussion about this. I want to bring in Mayor Fred Eisenberger. for I, This will probably be the last time we bring in Mayor Fred Eisenberger. So, you know, thank you for doing this. But um, where does the Commonwealth Games, as you begin your... Well, as the plane begins its descent into the runway here for the mayoralty that you've served, um, where does the Commonwealth Games thing stand?
6: Thanks for having me on, Scott, first of all. And, uh, you know, I'm around for another three weeks, so, you know, I'm sure something will come up. That may, uh, <laughs> probably. Make, uh, you're probably again. right. You I know, mean, beyond that, I'm, I'm still going to be in Hamilton. So uh, I, I look forward to maybe some ongoing dialogue in the future. Uh, the Commonwealth Games, uh, you know, Council has uh, has uh, supported the, the move towards uh, a memorandum of understanding with the Commonwealth Bid Committee. We are the Canadian bid. We did not have to compete for that, which is uh, good news. Previous iterations of our bid uh, saw us uh, competing against Halifax, uh, I recall, in, in Vancouver and other places. And uh, we're beaten out a few times. And this time uh, we are the national bid. As part of the overall Commonwealth uh, bids process, so we didn't have to spend any time, money, or resources to do that, and uh, and we're angling towards being uh, being the international Commonwealth uh, bid, and that's why we were meeting with the uh, the folks from Birmingham that just hosted the uh, Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, England, uh, just a couple of months ago. And so their uh, their insights and their knowledge of uh, how the games went and uh, what what uh, what was positive and you know what were some of the challenges kind kind of coming forward uh, is invaluable for uh, the Commonwealth bid group to uh, to have and understand, including the mayor and city staff and uh, Carrie Brooks Joiner, uh, joined me. She's with our cultural cultural staff. Has been very involved in the uh, the overall bid process. So uh we continue to uh, to move towards uh a, an agreement between the federal provincial and municipal government on how the Canadian bid is going to be uh, landed and then that bid will then be sent off to the commonwealth uh international organization to uh, to assess and and again we are the the, uh, the sentimental favorite because of the 100th anniversary that uh, lands in 2030 sure. Uh, which is the 100th anniversary of the Empire Loyalist Games, which was the foundation of the Commonwealth Games. So we are in a really, really good position to successfully achieve the games. And it's not just about the games. It is about the the, uh, the legacy piece that comes out of the games. It's about the investments that uh, will accrue. It's about the inspiration it creates in terms of sports and the value of sports for our children and their children. Uh, you know, all of that are are Truly valuable aspects of uh, of the games beyond the just two week event that we're talking about. It's a multi year, multi benefit uh, you know approach to generating a games that uh, will, will continue to create benefit to our community, like the Empire loyalist games did uh, some hundred years ago
0: what this has been a bit of a moving target in the what the games were going to be initially the plan was something much grander now it's been whittled down and down to reduce costs but at this mm-hmm. point do we know yet what the city of hamilton would be on the hook for what the budget not to the province or the feds what would hamilton be on the hook for do we know yet
6: we don't and uh, and that's still still kind of an open question and uh, you know, I think uh, it, it really has more to do with what uh, what is the legacy benefit that the city would invest in. Um, you know, previously, through the Pan Am Games bid process, uh, the only way we're, we were going to achieve a renewal of the stadium was through a games process, and Pan Am was the one. And uh, the city of Hamilton contributed uh, some $60 million towards a $180 million stadium, so one-third of the cost. Uh, certainly, we're. Uh, I, I think uh, you know, an aquatic facility for Hamilton is, uh, has been an aspiration that was part of the previous Commonwealth Games bids. Uh, it was also part of the Pan Am Games bid and was lost to other communities. And it's certainly something that uh, that is a need. If you talk to all of the aquatic folks in our city, that is definitely a need. And McMaster has been a sponsor for quite some time. And so it remains to be seen, you know, what the legacy piece is going to be. And that's part of the discussion negotiations with not only the feds, the province, but also once the, uh, the bid is won, uh, you know, how that then breaks out into what facilities are, are going to be needed to be built. And it's minimal. Uh, that's the good news is that the, the, the approach today is more about ex- using existing facilities as they are. So we have a great stadium. We'll have at that point a new arena that uh, can be used for, uh, for the opening games, uh, track facilities that uh, can be utilized as well, and then other communities as part of this regional bid approach uh, will also have the ability to use some of their existing facilities to, uh, to lend a hand to creating these games. So it's, uh, it's really a transformational approach beyond what it used to be, which was all about capital uh, infrastructure costs, that is now you know, being minimized. It's more about social benefit, employment opportunity benefits, and in particular, housing.
0: I wish we had a lot more time. Uh, we will sometime, hopefully in the next three weeks, uh, be chatting again. But that is Mayor Fred Eisenberger. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this.
6: Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure.
0: Lots more coming up here on Hamilton Today right after this. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The head of the U.S. Navy has warned that the American military must be prepared for the possibility of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan before 2024, as Washington grows increasingly alarmed about the threat to the island. Now, that's probably not entirely news to you. You've probably, if you pay any attention to the news, you've probably heard about rumblings of China and Taiwan, putting a time frame on it may be new, making it seem this soon would certainly be new. But there are two parts of this that are, there's probably more than two, but two parts that are very, very troubling. The humanitarian part of this, we'll call it three. The humanitarian part of this, any invasion is going to cost lives. The democratic part of this, but also broader and much more affecting the rest of the entire world is the technological part of this. Because many of the world's, or much of the world's technology, computer chips, semiconductor, come from Taiwan. If all of a sudden that was cut off, what does that do to all kinds of things around the rest of the world that rely on this? Cars, computers, whatever. i to bring in Carmi Levy, who's a technology analyst and a journalist, joins us now. Carmi, how are you today? To be here, Scott. I'm well. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Always, always love having you on. Um, Maybe not for this one. This is a this is depressing for all kinds of reasons. And I say, I mean, first and foremost, the idea that you know we could have a war and people die and freedoms are lost. But beyond that, and that we'll get more to that another day. uh, The technology part of this. How did we get to the point? Before we get into all the problems, how did we get to the point where one small little part of the world seems to create or produce
2: so much of the world's necessary technology. Well, in order to answer that we have to go back 40 50 60 years back to this so the early days of the internet the early days of the the first technology revolution as silicon valley was becoming silicon valley and a lot of the 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 major uh, us technology companies they they physically manufactured their technologies including the chips that powered them here in the united states so, you know at home domestically but then as time went on and as the uh the outsourcing offshoring boom picked up speed in the 1970s and 1980s they realized well you know we can design them here we have the engineers who you know live and work in the US but we can manufacture all the electronic guts more cheaply overseas and so some of it got farmed out to Japan some of it got farmed out to China and Taiwan emerged as a center of excellence for this not only could they build the huge factories known as uh, fabs or foundries uh, fairly cheaply? But they had a great education system. They had the right people in order to run those factories and turn them into the most efficient foundries in the world. To the point that today, basically ninety percent of the most advanced chips. On planet earth that power everything your phone your laptop your car, your house your office they come from there from one company taiwan semiconductor Manu- manufacturing company or tsnc so basically we did this because we decided well we want to do it more cheaply well you know, companies want to make more profit and no one really thought about the geopolitical implications it was all driven by the bottom line it made sense at the time but of course, now that there's military saber rattling happening over the very future of Taiwan, it's starting to look like maybe it wasn't wasn't the best decision after all. Maybe the strategy, the long-term strategy, could leave us all pretty vulnerable if war breaks out in that region.
0: Yeah, you know, um, there is a saying, and I think it's been around longer than even that, about putting all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> I don't know when that was created, that saying, when it was formed, but it. It it seems, and and I get why, I get why, because we wanted to be able to buy stuff inexpensively or less expensively, but it seems like such incredibly poor planning because even if it wasn't a war, what if there was an earthquake? What if there was a flood? What if, who knows what? Like, surely we wanted to make sure that we were covered in the event that something happened, but apparently not.
2: We haven't. It's, 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 this is what happens when corporate think becomes very short-term focused when it's focused on maximizing your share value this quarter or driving revenues or reducing costs but not really looking further down the road or asking the broader types of questions that you should be asking and so this is where you know capitalism runs into geopolitics and capitalism often wins in the short term but geopolitics always prevails long term and I think you know now we're starting to see companies think about repatriating some of that capacity. For example, Intel earlier this year announced that it was going to be spending tens of billions of dollars on this brand new campus in Ohio uh, that will include foundries, fabs, the ability to make these chips here that currently are being made in Taiwan. And so we're starting to see this movement back. They're like, "Uh oh, I think we realized we made a bit of a boo boo. We better pull it back in. But it's kind of too little too late because china is already saber rattling now uh and those all that capacity isn't going to be brought back onto this side of the ocean for years if not upwards of a decade that timeline's a little bit too long when the risks are growing right now
0: yeah and, and like we've seen this with other things as well i mean we just at the beginning of COVID, i don't know it, it, we don't have a great memory a lot of the time we can't remember what we had for breakfast so uh this may be forgotten but i mean all the um ppe at the start mm-hmm. of COVID, we suddenly said, wait a second, we gave ours away six months ago and now we don't have the ability to make it. Like there, There's a lot of things that suddenly I think we're realizing we have sent offshore that we really need and we don't have the capability. This though, for the points you made, this is probably the biggest one because theres I don't want to say there's nothing technological you could make without this stuff, but boy, does it ever whittle down the number of things
2: you could make without these things. This is definitely the the one sort of piece of offshoring of outsourcing that worries me the most, simply because it is so universal. If you know, if, I'm sitting in my home office right now, and I'm just looking around at the technology that I use to run my my work. Um, literally everything here all my computers, all my tablets, all my smartphones, all the the routers and 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 the devices, the modems that connect me to the outside world. They all rely on this and if something happens to taiwan i cannot go buy another one i probably will not be able to repair the ones that i have um you know if you're driving a car even if you buy a base model car it is stuffed with hundreds if not thousands of chips and many many manufacturers now they're literally building the cars without the chips parking them outside waiting for them to get here on boats and that's kind of a problem because, you know, I mean, obviously, if you bought a car, you're waiting years for it in some cases. Um, and in, in other cases, those chips may never get here at all. And that's now. War that's, hasn't broken out yet. It gets worse if it does.
0: You know, going back to the horse and buggy and the rotary dial phone may not be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> we And we may, you know, we may find that out sooner rather than later. Uh, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. don't know if anybody saw this earlier this week, but um, every little while we get these EQAO scores that come out, our our standardized testing scores in reading and math. And math in this province has been a problem for some time now. Uh, One of the vows that the current government made was, we're going to get these math scores up. Uh, Not so much. The latest data shows that 47 percent, less than 50, a failing grade, 47 percent only of grade six students met the provincial average, the provincial mandate for math. Only 52 percent of grade nine students reached that mandate. It is um, it's it's not good, I don't think, although some people say, well, it's just the test standardized scores. Who cares? I want to bring in Vanessa Vacaria. She is known as the math guru. She teaches it. She studies it. Uh, she joins us now. Vanessa, thanks for this today.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is, look, if I look at 47% of grade six students meeting the provincial math score, by definition, that sounds really bleak. Um, Not first of good. all, do you, do you see it as bleak as the number would suggest?
7: Yes, I think it's important to realize just for everyone to be clear that it doesn't mean that that percentage of students are failing math, it means they're failing to meet the provincial standard. And the provincial standard is a 75. So I think just for context, it's important to know that, you know, that half of our students are not getting 75%. I, I still think that's a big problem. I just want to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. But yeah, I do. I do think that's problematic. And what we're also not talking about is I believe that the EQAO released results saying that less than 50% of their grade six students said that they liked math. And to me, that's almost more important. Why do half of our kids hate math so much? Which, and math, which is an essential skill in life.
0: That's a fantastic question, because generally, if you do like something, you will work harder at it. And if you work harder at it, you will get better. I would say, though... Or I would ask you, though, is that really any different from 50 years ago, that part?
7: Mm -hmm. And, and you know, that's what I keep saying to everyone who wants to blame the curriculum, right? No, we've always had, I mean, ask anyone who's listening right now, I'm sure you have a ton of adults in your life who hate math. Math um, has always been a bit problematic, the way we teach it, the way we treat students with regards to it, the pressure that's placed on it. So I would say it's definitely problematic. When you look at the EQAO scores, I think part of the issue is that there is like, a decline, right? So every year we kind of drop down a few percentage points. And I would say that now, you know, the anxiety around math is actually at an all-time high. You know, the emotional response to math by kids is at an all-time high. So I think Overall, we are trending downward. We're not. We're not going in a good direction. And I think when you look at the forest for the trees that way, that's the problem.
0: And for the record, um, we've had you on the show before. We know you. Not everyone listening will. But you teach math. As I say, you tutor math. You. You. You're into it in a big way. But you hated math at one point.
7: I did. I failed grade eleven math twice. So I definitely. You know. I. Went you to a get it.
0: School. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you get it. You get this idea that people don't necessarily love it.
7: Well, I get it. And I also understand how much of it is dependent on a school. For me, I went to a, you know, a public school. There were huge class sizes. I was kind of brushed off as someone that wasn't a math person. And I didn't have any resources or attention from my teachers. So... That all changed when I went to a smaller school with smaller class sizes, more resources, an after-school program to help me. I ended up with a 98 in grade 12 math. And, you know, that's why I do what I do, which is private tutoring. I know what a difference uh, a one-on-one or a, a small teacher to student ratio can have. And that's why I think it's really problematic that that never seems to be the solution when it comes to education. We're always taking funding out of schools, out of schools, just like now the government is saying, let's put the money in the pockets of parents. But that's not where the educational money belongs. It belongs in schools.
0: How much, if at all, does this have to do with the fact that it seems anyway, and I've been out of school for a while now, when I said my kids have been out of school for a while now but that we keep changing, or at least it seems we keep changing how we teach math. Is is learning the new math, is always the phrase, is that complicating things?
7: I honestly don't think that's As big of a deal as we make it out to be, again, just because of what you said, even in the beginning when we had the same curriculum for a decade, we still had this problem, right? There was still this huge divide between those who could and those who couldn't. If you look at the money being put into early reading programs and literacy screening, we don't do that with numeracy. We have it. our, our ministry of education has decided that some people can do math and some people cannot, and that's the end of it. And that's why we don't treat all kids like they can do math and we don't have supports for all of them. So To me, the curriculum reform, sure, it's important to update a curriculum. I think that's important. But the way it's done is not. It's done in a piecemeal fashion. We changed the grade nine curriculum in the middle of the pandemic. We did not train teachers on how to teach that new curriculum or to teach d streamed math. There are still no textbooks for that math course. So grade nine students, there is no new D streamed math textbooks. They're all working from worksheets. That's not how you change a curriculum. So for people wanting to complain about the curriculum, it's not the curriculum. It's the way all of these things are carried out. There's no steady implementation plan.
0: The, you mentioned the other challenge with this, and I think it's a legitimate part of this, is that these tests were coming out of COVID, were coming out of kids being at home, not in school, learning online, all those kind of other things. That I mean, look, that has to be part of this. That has to factor into this. I don't know whether suddenly you're going to go up to a much, much higher number who would do well in math, but it's got to hurt these numbers that we've had the disruptions in schooling that we've had.
7: Oh, absolutely. And it does. And also the test was done online, but there have been problems with the EQAO in general for as long as I can remember. You know, for one, in grade six, most students are not allowed to use calculators in class. There's a huge emphasis on mental math, but on the EQAO, they can all of a sudden use calculators. So they are there is a real big disconnect between assessment and instructional practice which leads to students often underperforming on the EQAO test or just simply not being familiar with that method of um, being assessed. So that's problem number one. And then number two is often, you know, teachers, we get calls all the time from students saying they want to study for the EQAO we didn't get those calls at all last year because everyone was so busy trying to fill in their learning gaps. So I wonder how much time was actually spent teaching students how to write that test. You know, it is a standardized test. It differs from how we teach and assess students in class. And that's why it's a little bit problematic. I'm not sure exactly what it's measuring or what it's intended to measure, but I have a feeling it's a bit off from the results we're wanting to see.
0: Very quickly, we only got 30 seconds. Is this fixable? We're we're going down and down and down. Is there anything really realistic that the province or the school boards could do? Or is this just a reality that we're going to be
7: having tough math scores? Nope. They could take all the funding that they're allocating for things that have no proven track record, and they could put it back in schools, higher educational assistants, math specialists, lower class sizes, Invest back into schools so that students are not forced to outsource their education with $200 in their pocket to hire a tutor for two sessions. That's not going to be what moves the needle. Put those money, put that money back in schools and create classroom environments that are conducive to learning for all students.
0: That is Vanessa Vicaria. She is known as the Math Guru. You can find her website, themathguru.ca, if you're interested, or maybe if you have kids who need help, there's someone, uh, there's a good source to go to. uh, And even if she can't help you directly, I'm sure Vanessa can point you to somewhere who can. Uh, Vanessa, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this.
7: Thank you for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900
0: One of the things that has come to people's attention in the last little while is, and this happens in every election, no matter what level, is whether you call it disinformation or whether you call it mistakes or whatever else, there are people who say, look, stuff being said about me, candidates say stuff being said about me is not accurate. Or other candidates say, no, no, that's every bit accurate. I'll give you an example. John Paul Danko was on Twitter uh, yesterday pointing to an ad that he says, this ad contains nine blatant lies attributed to me personally. He's saying it's misinformation. I was talking to Brad Clark about something, and Brad Clark says there is literature out there that he says contains misinformation about him. Others... I'm sure would say something similar. I want to bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin. He's a senior fellow at Massey College, a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you for your time today.
8: No, it's my pleasure.
0: This is, uh, let's leave aside the candidates' feelings for a moment here, because as the voters... This becomes such a difficult thing because I, I don't know how much people really dive into the platforms online, the average person. So you're relying on the stuff that arrives in front of your eyeballs. What do you how are you
8: supposed to determine if this is true or not? Well, first of all, let's <laughs> let's agree that uh, politics is a contact sport and Fair. that part of the goal in politics, is to put your opponent on the back foot, as it were, to make him or her sound defensive. And so, yeah, sure, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation that is being spread out there. And the goal of that is for a candidate who who receives these uh, allegations of... Uh, Uh, of wrong facts or, or misinformation or disinformation, that they're forced to then say, okay, I'm not gonna talk about what I'm proposing. I'm gonna have to correct the record as stated by my opponent. And that is particularly the goal in politics now, which is to get your opponent not to talk about the things that he or she wants, but to defend what may or may not be his or her record and i think that that's part of the dilemma of the in the digital culture that we live in now is that it's pretty easy to spread wrong information about anybody and then you get into the the sense that the audience the voters the citizens are left with the idea of well so-and-so seem to be uh very defensive about such and such an issue. And it's basically not necessarily causing people to uh, question what that position is, but basically just to sow a few doubts in the minds of the public about a candidate or what he or she stands for. And we're seeing this much, much more in the States than we're seeing it here, but we're definitely seeing more of it here than we used to.
0: Is what you're talking about the old, it was a joke, although it's not a funny joke, but the joke about when did you stop beating your wife? If you say, I didn't, then you've said, you still beat your wife. And if you say, I, and you give a date, then you say, well, what, you were beating your wife until that time. It's not funny, but it it puts you in a a position where, first of all, people are now thinking, oh, this person beat his wife. And then
8: two, it's an impossible answer. Exactly. Um, So there's no way you can correct that. And in fact, I think what... People who advise politicians to do is to move past the allegations. Say, well, everybody knows that's ridiculous. Here's what I stand for, not what my opponent says I, I stand for. And to get, to try to move the conversation or the debate back into a, a better place, uh, for, for the candidate. Um, uh, that's kind of tough to do when you have so much, uh, weird stuff being put out on the internet all the time um it's it it becomes more it, it become it becomes like a wrestling match in a um in a in a in a in a mud pie uh it just it just mm. doesn't work as well as it once did or maybe it never did. I mean we 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 hear allegations about uh various politicians and what they were up to and 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 then the politician then says, well that's not true and th- this is a lie. And we end up not discussing the issues that are really important. Um, just before we, I, we, we started this conversation, I heard an ad on your station just now about who are the secret sprawlers in the Hamilton area that are want to build all these large mansion houses, these, these McMansions, and, and therefore won't pay taxes. Well, that's a lot of information. The question is, if you build more houses, don't the people who own those houses pay taxes? Doesn't building more houses actually reduce the tax burden on poorer people? All kinds of stuff is just out there, leaving the impression that somebody's doing something wrong. And that's the difficulty we're in right now. But it also seems to me that what it does is it
0: bolsters your opinion. So if, if let's say that there is a candidate that you already don't like, and then you get some literature that says something about them, whether it's true or not, you are now even more likely to believe poorly about that politician. If, if you like that politician, you're just going to wave it off and say, well, that's completely ludicrous. But those aren't the people you're probably after anyway. You're just trying to with, if you're going to put out misinformation, you're going to be trying to just make sure that people still have all those thoughts in their mind when they go to the ballot box.
8: That's exactly right. It's the idea of leaving a little seed of doubt in in the voter's mind. And this is what Trump did so brilliantly with the help of some Russian uh, bloggers and uh, and doxers uh, in the 2016 election. They were able to identify a number of people in the Midwest who were very... Uh, religious and and evangelical, and that they may have been susceptible to the idea that Hillary Clinton was in league with the devil. Now, (laughs) uh, you know, most people would say, well, that's patently ridiculous. But if 10% of the voters in a certain part of the country have this idea planted in their heads oh well maybe there's something wrong with her there where there's smoke there's fire all that sort of thing then it was enough to turn the election away from hillary clinton and towards donald trump and i think this is the kind of uh psychological almost warfare that uh, that politics is engaged with now it's not that you say uh, my cat my 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 opponent is an idiot you say Something a little more subtle than that. Well, and, is- and we
0: gotta run we gotta run. But the other thing is even if this is not misinformation, even if it was, if it was honest mistake, even if something that you put something down that you thought to be true but was wrong, it still essentially serves the same purpose. And we gotta exactly. run. Exactly. And even, it, it even just, if you're not
8: being malicious about it.
0: Right. Even if you're not if, if we're not careful. It's why people have to do their own research, quite honestly, but even then Still hard to find the answers and believe those answers. Uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Today was day, I don't know what number, of the Emergencies Act inquiry. Day uh, five, six, seven, we're, we're moving along. We've got six weeks of this, so, you know, there's still time, but we're in the early stages. Yet we are now, I think, I think, starting to get a bit of a picture of what was going on if not in the entire situation certainly within the policing of this uh we heard from a, a former senior officer from the ontario provincial police who talked about the early meetings with ottawa police and said that the meetings were unprofessional and disrespectful uh, it's it's um <clears throat> I don't know. Let me uh, let me bring in Sean Sparling, retired deputy chief of the Sault Saint Marie Police. Currently, the president of Investigative Solutions Network. Uh, Sean, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate this.
5: Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
0: Unprofessional and disrespectful does not exactly sound complimentary towards Ottawa police.
5: No, it doesn't. Uh, I watched a lot of that, and uh, a lot of it was, uh, quite frankly, was uh, disturbing. And uh, certainly, uh, Ottawa is uh, has a black eye out of this and uh, at the command staff level. And um, it was very interesting to listen to the uh, the senior members from the OPP and their analysis. And uh, that's a very, uh, very well organized incident management team. And I would trust their assessment of things.
0: With, with what you've heard so far, and look, we're trying to piece together something without having read the entire plot. So it's not exactly fair. But with what you've heard so far, have you heard anything that would have told you that had this been handled differently, the outcome might have been different?
5: Well, I I still believe that uh, initially uh, that there's uh, there's – some bad decisions made as far as letting the trucks downtown and whatnot, but as far as letting them have their, uh, their moment in the sun, have their protest, uh, that, that is common, that's normally what you'd let them do and hopefully they'd peter out and leave. And it was from that point on that it became very dysfunctional and that there was no secondary plan of action. What are you going to do if they don't leave? How are you going to make them go? And that's really where it fell apart and that's really where there was no leadership uh, to speak of at, uh, at uh, the Ottawa Police Service that was actually in control to make those decisions.
0: Now, there's 2 you've just raised two really interesting directions this could go, because if they had come and then not left, you certainly have yourself an issue. You have the honking horns, and you have the exhaust, and you have the people, and, and you have yourself a bit of a mess. The question, though, is, and I don't think anyone disputes that. I don't even think that the people who support this disputed that it was an annoyance. The question is, have we heard anything that would then take that And so far anyway, and raise it to the level where the government of Canada was being threatened to fall or where the government couldn't govern or whether there was some sort of, you know, situation where parliament was about to be taken over. Because that that seems to be what this is all about and absolutely annoying. But was it emergency act worthy annoying yet?
5: Um, I take my my lead from that from the OPP, uh, the head of the Provincial uh, Intelligence Bureau. That's a big organization that has international and national uh, contacts for intelligence. They know what they're doing. Um, and uh, their assessment was that there was no uh, national threat. And I noticed that today that even in some of the notes, they had uh, contact with CSIS and some of these uh, higher end uh, intelligence groups who were also communicating that there was no national threat. So I think that is going to remain in there. And uh, that's um, that's going to be interesting to see how the government's going to handle that. Well, right. And
0: and as I've said a few times, like we don't have the full picture yet. I would have expected, Now, tell me if you would have thought the same thing. I'm not an expert in inquiries here, but I would have thought that if there was something that would have told us about that threat, that that would have been presented really early on, because this is not, this is, in my mind, less about the inquiry's actual document that gets produced than public relations, then than how the public sees this. You want to make sure you win the war of the public opinion on this as much as you get anything into a report, correct?
5: Yeah, like I... I... You would have thought that if the government had something to say that this is why it uh, fit within the Emergencies Act, we would have heard in the opening uh, um, statements from the different lawyers because the government's represented there. We heard different things from the different uh, organizations, but we never really heard anything from the the government to justify why they used the act. And what we heard was the opposite from the people who actually had the real intelligence saying that we didn't have intelligence to say that justified the use of it. The last uh, witness that just testified, uh, uh, Carson Party, he flat out said that we had what we needed within legislation to do what we did. So had this been
0: organized a little bit differently, I don't, I don't mean the, the truckers, I mean the police, had this been organized differently? Or if you were now involved in some sort of boardroom meeting because you heard that a convoy was coming to your city, it, was there a way that this could have been prevented? Could it have simply, if we'd put up, if, if Ottawa police had put up barricades around parliament or something else, it, was there anything, do you believe from what you've heard so far that could have changed where this went?
5: The only thing I can think of that Ottawa could have done, and this is just a maybe, and it's uh, very much uh, hindsight, is uh, shut those trucks off from getting off the highway and into the downtown. I know that's much easier said than done. But other than that, um, I think this was going to be a mess no matter where it occurred, if it was up on the highway or if it was going to be downtown. They're going to be dealing with having to remove all these people. But it, uh, okay. it still was very poorly or, uh, organized from the policing standpoint in the beginning. It got much better towards the end. Uh, but this was going to be a mess no matter where it happened. So let's go to that.
0: Uh, you said a moment ago that all the laws were there that, that one of the testimony, part of the testimony was all the laws were there that needed to be there. If the police after X number of days said, okay, enough is enough, Uh, we have decided that you're now a nuisance or whatever law you wanted to impose, could they not have gone in with sufficient numbers and simply cleared people out or would that have been dangerous to try and do that?
5: No, well, that's what exactly what they did. It took uh, it took a while to, uh, for them to amass the strength and get the operational plan to go ahead and do it. But they didn't all of a sudden step off on their plan just because the Emergencies Act was invoked. They were already uh, planning, and I haven't heard yet that anybody from uh, government communicated uh, down into the incident command team to say, "What do you need to make this uh, to bring this to a resolution?" So the uh, the, right. police don't use, the police use the police used what was already in existence for their plans. That was what I was just going to say. So that this was
0: the law There was not a new, well, there was the act put into place, but there was no, was there any new law that was passed? There was no new law that was passed that allowed them to do it. It was just, they were able to use more force to enforce existing laws, correct?
5: Well, they, they, they allowed them to basically, um, uh, order the uh, tow truck drivers into place and a couple of other things. That's what was within the, uh, within the act. But even, uh, uh, like Carson Party said today that we had other means to get this done. Um, so the couple of things that the emergency act came with, uh, when they invoked it, um, that the commander in charge of it saying that it wasn't necessary, he had what he needed before that was uh, put in place.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's going to be a difficult one for people to forget that line because, uh, ultimately to, to establish that this was necessary, you have to establish there was no other way. Correct. There was not only risk to the country, to governance, but that there was no other way to do this, and right now it doesn't sound like they have either established.
5: Yeah, and uh, the guy in charge saying he didn't need it. Uh, my only uh, thought at the back of my mind is that they're going to try and loop in uh, the what was going on at the bridge in Windsor as well, the uh, the shutdown of the economy at the bridge, and that's going to be a factor into this. But I'm not sure. I think that might come up next from the government.
0: There, as I say, there is still much time for this. We have got weeks left to go. Uh, Sean Sparling, retired deputy chief of the Sault Ste. Marie police and currently the president of investigative solutions network. Uh, We very much appreciate your time today. Thank you for
5: this. Thanks for your time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton
0: Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you to Tom for keeping us on the air today. Great job on the board. Uh, Thank you to Will for lining everything up, to you for listening, to all of our guests. But again, back to you. Uh, We appreciate you being here. I do want to hear from you, though. Keep sending those texts. You can also email Radley at 900CHML.com. Have yourself a magnificent weekend. We will talk to you on Monday. Lots to talk about then. See ya.